You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Well, I hope that your hearts are open to God and you're in a place of praise and now you're going to be in a place to receive uh, what he has said, his truth. And you can open up a Bible, either the one you brought or the one in front of you, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 43 to 48. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we encourage you to take that one in the seat in front of you as our gift to you. Also, the main points are in the bulletin where you can make notes. Today's sermon is the second part of uh, one we did last week, so if you didn't hear last week's, I'd encourage you later to go back and listen to it to put it in proper context and to make sure it makes sense to you. The sermon this called this week, As Your Father in Heaven Is, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Just before that, um, if you are a member, uh, know that one of the elders is going to be getting a hold of you in the next couple of weeks um, as... Uh, church, we're trying. We want to be a church that takes care of uh, its congregation, uh, that is there for them when they need them. So if the elders, the six of us, have um, each of us divided up uh, the members of the congregation um, because those are the people that have indicated that they're really a part of this church, that they're really in it, and therefore we want to do the best we can to take care of you. So uh, one of the elders will be your spiritual uh, care elder, and so they'll make contact with you, visit with you um, a couple times a year, and they're your go-to person. If there's an emergency or something that you need, you go to them, and then they will disseminate the information uh, to everyone else, and so expect a call in the next couple of weeks. So let's read it together and see what Jesus has to say to us. You have heard it said, it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will that be? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing that's out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, God, I don't think any of us that understand what you're saying would say that this is easy to do or that any of us have mastered this uh, being kind uh, to those who don't like us because we follow you those who insult us those who uh, make our lives difficult and yet you've said it and so therefore we know it's truth and we know it is the way to peace and we look at a world that's so chaotic and so much hardship and so much suffering and we see that its way doesn't work And we see that the way of religion doesn't work either. And therefore, we have the way of truth. And we need your help to actually live this out because this is not an easy thing you ask. But it's great and it's good and it's possible through you. So help us today in Jesus' name. Amen. 
verse 43. It's been called the law regarding love and hate. And Jesus says, as he constantly has been saying throughout this whole sermon, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Did, he, did the Bible ever say hate your enemy? Last week we heard a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. We knew that that was from Exodus 21. Uh, and we had heard that said before. God had said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But you might say, well, where does the Bible say love your enemies, or sorry, love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemies? Well, it doesn't say that. The Old Testament says love your neighbors, but it doesn't say hate your enemies. And we talked about last week how there was religious people. There was Pharisee, Pharisees and Sadducees and rabbis, what we would look at the equivalent of pastors and theologians, uh, who were going around taking uh, bits of the Bible, taking bits of the Old Testament and changing it and interpreting it in the, the way they wanted to and adding to it. And so before there was pastors going around saying, hate this person and hate that group. In fact, in those days, you were a good Jew if you hated everyone who wasn't a Jew. You were a righteous Jew if you loved anyone who was a Jew, and you were a righteous Jew if you hated the Gentiles and hated the Samaritans. It was a commandment not from God, but a commandment from the Pharisees and the rabbis. And so a good Jew wouldn't go to Samaria. They would take the long way around. A good Jew wouldn't have any Samaritan or Gentile friends. A good Jew, when he was in the uh, cities, in the tight uh, walkways, he would cinch up his robe tightly so even his robe would not touch a Gentile unbeliever and therefore defile him. Uh, this was the teachings of the religious leaders 2,000 years ago. And so that's why Jesus says, you've heard it said, uh, but I say to you something Else, In fact, historians tell us that uh, the Pharisees would teach in Jesus' time that God created us, the Jews, to be his people and the Gentiles as kindling to fuel the fires of hell. But that's not what Jesus says. See, Jesus knows that hate is one of the heaviest baggages that a person can carry. Ever meet a person who has hate? In their heart, it's not just a passing hate for, uh, for something, but it's a hate that's there. Maybe it's for a person. Uh, maybe it's for a group of people, a certain kind of people, a gender, a race. Maybe it's for a parent. Maybe it's for a, a spouse. But they have that hate. It's baggage. It's something they drag around with them. It infects all of their life, their relationships. It goes from generation to generation. It's a thing that we pass down to those who we love. And Jesus says, don't do that. And you may say, well, I don't hate anyone, not me. But then let's remember, if you look back in verse 21 in chapter 5 of this sermon, uh, Jesus says, you've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister has already committed murder in his heart. And so we know that it's in the mind. You don't necessarily uh, show outward hate, but you hate someone or a group. It's baggage. It's not good. Hate, hate can come out of, out of once a great relationship. I meet husbands and wives who hate each other. 
It's an emotional response that's built up so that they resent that person and they wish ill upon that person and they want to make that person pay. I meet uh, parents and children who hate each other. They once loved each other and, and they were once a family and now they hate each other. I've met siblings who once loved each other and hated each other as Joseph's brothers hated him. Hate is the cause of much of the problems of our world. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to bitterness, which the Bible tells us is like a root that springs up and takes over a person's entire being and their entire life. And that leads to destruction if bitterness is not dealt with. And so you know deep down if you hate a person or a group, you can... See it in your mind. Uh, when you think of them, there's some ill towards them. There's some anger towards them. You don't necessarily know why, but you lump them if they're a group all together or if it's a person, you relive the pain that they've caused you over and over and over again. But Jesus knows that hate does you more good than it does other people. Right? Sometimes we want to hate people and we think that by hating them, it'll make them pay. But in fact, it usually ends up hurting us more than the people we hate. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So let's put this into context. Remembering last week's sermon that uh, which was called the biblical response um, of violence, that uh, Jesus doesn't say there isn't a time and a use for violence, that Jesus doesn't say uh, when we looked at the entirety of Scripture that you are not to defend yourselves or to defend those who are innocent when they're being attacked, that Jesus is talking about those who hate you because you follow him specifically. Not because you're a liberal, not because you're a conservative, uh, not because you're a man or a woman or you identify as something else. Uh, not because you're a, a, a Mexican or you're African or you're Caucasian. Not those sorts of hates. Jesus is specifically right now talking about those who hate you because you follow Jesus Christ. Let's not forget what he said eight weeks ago in the Beatitudes Verse 10, chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and they persecute you falsely and say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's talking about when people hate you because you worship the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, because you serve him, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, because you are in the light, because you serve the light of the world. Because you believe that God came to this earth, Jesus Christ, a brown Middle Eastern man who lived 2,000 years ago, who was perfect in every way, was human in every way, was tempted in every way, and was God, was without sin. Because you worship him, people don't like you. There's a cost to being on a winning team sometimes. There's a cost to living in the light sometimes. And Jesus lets us know that some people will not like you. And, and how should we respond? Not the way that the natural world responds. 
in the natural world, if somebody uh, doesn't like you because of your political party and they, they slap you in the face and say, how could you vote for that person? You'd probably level them back if you were living in the natural world. But Jesus says, when we were looking at the way the Romans treated the Jews, just take it and, and show them your other cheek to show them you are of equal value to them. In the natural world, uh, people will take something from someone else uh, because they feel they can. Maybe it's because of their race or their gender. In the natural world, you, you look to get revenge when you're being persecuted because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, don't let it get to you. And we looked at last week how, how the Christian does everything they can. It doesn't mean they're a doormat. It doesn't mean they let people violate them. But they do everything they can to demonstrate that they live in a different kingdom. That they don't operate by the world's standards. To do everything they can to win somebody to Jesus Christ. And that means showing a supernatural love to those who hate us. And he gives us some examples on how to do it. Notice that. He gives us our, his father as the example. And, and Jesus is talking about, he says, he says do it as a child uh, looks up to his father, right? He's, he's speaking as, as so that you may be children of your father in heaven. You remember in the days when, when it was good for a little boy to look up to his father? Remember those days when that was not something shameful? Uh, when, when we would say, yeah, look up, little boy, to your father, when men were something to be looked up after? That's the kind of imagery we're having that you as a Christian to look up to God and and see how the Father treats His enemies. And how does the Father treat His enemies? And how are we supposed to treat our enemies? First of all, God loves them while they are enemies. And we are to love those even though they're our enemies. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, Paul reminds us, but God proves His own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, for if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So to offer love to an enemy simply means to show them grace that they don't deserve. Grace that they have not shown you, but they get anyways. Think about the way God treated you while you were still an enemy. He didn't bring judgment on you. He offered you forgiveness. He offered you peace. He showed you love and he died for you and for me. And even if you were the only human on this earth, he still would have come and given himself on the cross for you. That's the imagery that we're seeing, that God came to this earth as a son to give himself for us, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. There's a story of a Baptist pastor uh, who lived back in, during the American uh, Great Revolution. His name was Peter Miller. And Peter lived in Pennsylvania. Uh, Peter knew George Washington, not when George Washington was the president, but when George Washington was commander-in-chief. And so he knew he had this friend. And in this town that, that he lived, this pastor lived, there was a guy named Michael Whitman. And Michael Whitman did not like this pastor. In fact, he hated Christians. But he especially hated the pastor. And so on every opportunity, he would oppose him and humiliate him and look to cause problems in his life. 
But during the war, Michael was arrested for treason, working with the British, and sentenced to die. And the story goes that Pastor Peter traveled 70 miles on foot, on foot, to plead for the life of Michael. The dialogue goes that as he was pleading, Washington interrupted and said, No, Peter, I will not grant you the life of your friend. My friend, said the old pastor, he is the bitterest of enemies I have. What? cried Washington. You walk 70 miles to save the life of your enemy? Well, that puts matters into a different light, Washington says. I'll grant you this pardon. And Pastor Peter took Michael back to him, to his town, and they were no longer enemies, but they were friends, one to the kingdom by the love demonstrated through persecution. And that is what we are called to do, to show love to those who are our enemies. Second thing he tells us to do is to pray for those who persecute us. It's pretty hard to stay angry at somebody when you're praying for them. Trust me, I have to do it. When I feel angry towards people, I force myself to pray for them. And the anger tends to leave, at least for a time. And we know that God prayed for us. Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for his enemies. He prayed for those who were going to hang him. When he was in front of Jerusalem on a hilltop, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I so wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not allow me. And he wept. When he was on the cross, Luke chapter 23, verse 33, tells us when he came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. Who? The very people he was praying over and weeping for, along with the criminals. One on the right and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his garments By casting lots, and the people stood watching, and the rulers sneered at him. This is the one that we follow, and this is the one that we are called to look up to and mimic. It's pretty hard to do this, but it's possible. Because Jesus says he'll do it in us. It's possible that you can show love, that you can pray for even those who have hurt you, most. But you say, well, you don't know what somebody's done to me. You don't know. And you're right. I don't know. And for some of you, I can never know the pain that you've suffered. But I know God knows. And I know he still says this is the way to peace. Not only peace inside of you, but peace in this messed up world. I, once, I used to share my testimony at men's breakfast. And after one men's breakfast, a a guy who had had some similar uh, things uh, came up to me and he said, uh, he was sharing a little bit about his life and he talked about how his ex-wife, when he became a follower of Christ, uh, totally started to hate him. Uh, She didn't want anything to do with Jesus and and she divorced him and, and she left him and she poisons the kids and tells them things about him. I don't know what was true and what wasn't true. But I remember asking him something along the lines of, do you pray for her? Because I was having to force myself to pray for my ex, somebody who had hurt me. Do you pray for her? Uh, No. No, I don't. 
How can I pray for her? She causes me so much pain and suffering. How could I do that? Because Jesus did. and Because it's how I can get over the anger and pain inside of my heart. And can you uh, think of her just for a, a moment? And I, and I can't remember exactly what I said, but I think I said something along the lines of, think of her as a lost person. Don't think of her as the person who's hurt you. Think of her as God sees her, lost and broken, without hope, as you once were. Think of her as the person who was hurt in her childhood and maybe had things done to her that you don't know about. She's carrying around baggage inside of her. Think of her in the the light of Christ and pray for her that Christ would do what he's done in your heart. And not only that, but as you pray for her, your anger, your hatred will go. And then I said something along those lines of, remember who you were? Remember the way God saw you, all the secret things that nobody knows about. Not even your wife, not even your children, but only God knows about. And yet, he still forgave you. When you're feeling that hatred, think about the kindness and love that God showed you. Yeah, I think I can do that, he said, and we prayed together. And I hope he's doing that still. And then it says the third way uh, that God showed love to us while we were his enemies, was he provided for us. He provides for everyone. Talks about the sun coming up on on the evil men and the good and and the rain coming on the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? Have you ever gotten up in the morning? We have a little place uh, off of our kitchen uh, where it's got beautiful light and and it shines through the forest. And sometimes I get up and before the house is busy, uh, just as the sun is coming up and it's, it's peeking through the trees and I just can't believe it. Like, I can't believe it that God allows it to go on another day. Someday we know it's going to be done, but another day, all of the world gets this beauty, gets the sun to come up and, and gets the, the food to grow up and, and gets the rain falling from the sky. Think about it. In Canada, 39 million people, let's say 30 million of them, don't want anything to do with God. And in fact, some of them curse God and, and make fun of his name and, and blaspheme him. And say he's nothing, he's good for nothing. And yet, the sun comes up. And yet, they have food. And yet, they have clean water. And yet, they have a house to sleep in. Uh, God is so good and provides for even his enemies. There's a wonderful movie. Um, If you like movies, uh, it's a family movie, but I recommend it for adults if you want to have a good cry. It's one of the movies I try and watch it once a year. Uh, It's called The, The Secrets of Jonathan Sperry. It's a beautiful story, really well done Christian movie, not a badly poor done Christian movie, but a really well done Christian movie, but a guy nobody really knows of named Jonathan Sperry. He was just a regular guy, and somebody made the story of his life, the, one of the kids that he affected. He was an older man, and his wife had been killed by a drunk driver. Uh, the drunk driver lived across the street from him, and so uh, he befriends some local kids who are a bit lost, and he hires them to do uh, maintenance, and he makes them food and barbecues for them and teaches them bi- the Bible because nobody else is doing it. And even when some of the bullies come and tease him and make fun of him, for the, make fun of Jonathan, he just takes it and he speaks love to them and, and speaks to this one about uh, his father who had died that he knew. And he won the hearts of them. And, and he was teaching dozens of kids just on his front lawn. But he hired one of the kids, who later becomes a pastor, to cut the lawn 
of the guy who killed his wife, who's disabled now because of the accident, who couldn't cut it himself. And he makes the kid promise that he won't tell that guy who's paying for it. And it isn't until Jonathan dies that they're at the funeral where the boy tells the man who had done it, and the man breaks down and starts crying and says, I was the one. Nobody knew that. He says, I was the one that killed his wife on that day. That's the kind of love that changes hearts. That's the kind of love we're called to demonstrate. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Not that it makes you a Christian, but this demonstrates that we are children of our Father. It demonstrates that we're not just regular people. The word Christian simply means a mini-Christ or a, a, a Christ impersonator, you could say it. Somebody who copies Christ, who believes in him and copies him and does what he wants to do, wants to be him, like a child of Christ. That's simply what it means. We complicate it sometimes, but that's what it means. So if you identify as that, that's what you're saying. I'm a person who copies Jesus Christ, who believes in Jesus Christ. We're called to be more than ordinary, more than ordinary. In the world, many ways in the West, over the last quarter century of the, of the 20th century, has lost its ability to influence the world out there. Right as we, as we looked inwardly and we hid in our churches and we sung our favorite songs and we did our programs, we lost the courage to go out there and share the gospel. We lost the desire to show supernatural love. And so the world said, well, we don't need that. They just care about their traditions and their customs and their little things that they do. And so now kids walk by churches and they say, what's that place, mommy? I don't know what that place is. And I don't know who those people are that go in and out. Because so often we don't have any interaction. We're just normal or weird. And so in the place of the church in the last 10 or 15 years has, has come the influencers, the internet influencers. Because people don't have God's word to go to anymore. They don't know the truth, so they go on the internet and YouTube and Instagram and they follow their influencers. A lot of these people have no experience in life and a lot of their lives are disasters and yet people are so hungry for some sort of truth they'll listen to these influencers. But we are called to be more than ordinary. And the world isn't waiting for another church to be built or another denomination. It's waiting for us to allow God to manifest himself through us. That's why Jesus says, verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing that is out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? It's ordinary to just love the people who love you right? Or the people who look like you or the people who act like you or have your political leanings. It's ordinary to just do that. That's what we do as people. But Jesus says even the scumbag degenerates do that. The tax collectors, the worst of the worst, they do that. So whoop-de-doo if you do that too. We're supernatural people. And we as humans, we tend to, to go and be around people who are like us, who look like us, who talk like us, who think like us, who dress like us, right? That's the way we tend to do it. 
I only hang out with people who are both the way I do. And I only hang out with people in my social economic class. And and I only uh, hang out with people who are my skin color. That's ordinary. That's the way the world lives. We even do it in the churches sometimes. I only hang out with people my age group or only people in the same family situation and only people who like the same sort of music. Whoop-dee-doo. That's the way the world is. That's ordinary. And Jesus says, so what? Do something supernatural. Be a supernatural person. And supernatural people let Christ manifest his love through it. He's not saying it's easy, but he's saying it's the right way. It's his way. Be perfect, then he says. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a sign of Christian maturity. Obviously, we know none of us will be perfect, myself especially, until we get to heaven. And then we will be perfect, the Bible says. But until then, we're a work in progress. So what's he saying? If, if he's not saying be perfect, like just bam, I'm perfect, what's he saying? He's saying go towards perfection. Your father is perfect, so look to him and go towards him by doing the things he tells you to do and acting the way he tells you to act and allowing him to manifest himself through you. And showing love towards and praying for and providing for those who are against your God is a supernatural way to go. And it's sending you towards perfection. It's, it's growing you in Christian maturity. And the New Testament is clear. Like, it's clear. It has distinctions between maturity levels of Christians. We see this in many places. It has nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian because I've met uh, some people who have been a Christian for 50 years uh, and they're not as mature as some people I've met who have been a Christian for two years. So it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with your age either because I've met 70-year-old Christians who are less mature than a 25-year-old Christian. It has nothing to do with that. But it has everything to do with your desire to know God, the God of the Bible, and to allow Him to change you. To know him and to allow him to change you. That's what it has everything to do with. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 says this. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. And so, a humble person who takes on the, the personality of Christ, who allows the Holy Spirit to live in, who takes on a meek uh, position in life, a humble position in life, puts away childish things. What are childish things? Where, how do your kids act? Selfish? Angry? Right? Trying to get back at the other person for what they've done? Holding a grudge? Right? And so often we're like that. I know what Jesus said, but I'm not doing it. Because I have the right to be angry and to hold that hatred. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 to 14, Paul says this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, and he's talking to the church, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
And so the Bible, this amongst other places, speaks about when we become Christians, we're like infants. And infants need milk, right? Because it's easy to digest. And after a while, then they move off of milk. They move on to solid food. They may have a glass of milk with their dinner, but that's not their whole diet. You can't become an adult who just drinks milk all your life, right? Or you're going to be a pretty weak adult. And so let me give you an example of what it looks like to be fed milk. This is uh, the daily bread. It's a good little devotional. We buy them and we give them out for free. It's good. It's like milk. It, every day of the week, it'll provide you with a verse and then an then opinion on the, avert, on the verse and something to pray about. Right? It's good. It's simple. But it's milk. It's basic Christianity. And if this is all you ever read, you'll only ever be a Christian on milk. Uh, because you need the solid food. So this is good. You can have this every day. You can have a glass of milk and be an adult. But you need the Word of God. You need to be going through the books. You need to be looking at them, praying through them, wrestling through them, reading commentaries on them, listening to sermons on them. You need to be putting some effort into your faith to be getting the solid food that you need. Have a glass of milk. But don't let that be the only thing. Be in the Word of God. Be digesting it. It is your food to grow you into a strong Christian. But it isn't just these, because sometimes we can be Christians with head knowledge, a lot of it, but we don't apply it. It's like if I go and eat steak every day, steak and potatoes and vegetables, and then I go sit on the couch for the rest of the day. Then I become a fat guy, right? And some Christians, they're, they're overflowing with information about God, but they don't apply it to their lives. And so Jesus isn't just saying, know the way I am, Live the way I am. You need to apply it. Take the milk, take the food, and apply it to your life. And that is maturity in Christianity. And Jesus is saying, when you can start showing love to those who hate you, you are moving into serious Christian maturity. And that impresses the world. And that takes the notice of the world. I'll close with a story that I read about a South American pastor. And he talks about how one of his former uh, pastors, one of the former other pastors in his denomination, hated him. Just had it out for him. And they were at a, at a convention. And so he thought he'd purposely go up to him and say hi to him and show love to him. And so he went up and gave him a hug and, and said, how you doing, brother? And he pushed him away and said, don't hug me. So the pastor responded, but I love you. You're my brother. How do you, you love me? I'm your enemy and I hate you. Well, he said, praise the Lord. I didn't know that you were my enemy. Now I have an opportunity to love my enemy. And then he went on to pray in front of the other pastors. God, thank you for my enemy. Bless him. And he says that later within a year, he was invited by this man who used to hate him to come and preach at his church. And they became friends. By a supernatural demonstration of God. So I challenge you this week. Who are you holding grudges towards? Who are you harboring hate towards? Who do you need to be praying for? Who do you need to be showing an act of kindness towards, even though they don't deserve it? Nobody said they deserve it. Who do you need to do something nice for? Not necessarily even 
something that they're going to know, but something that God will know, something that God will bless and reward. That's my challenge to you this week. <clears throat> and so as we partake in communion, this is a great reminder for us what Jesus has just said. Because what is communion? It's when we remember that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were his enemies, he gave himself for us. And so this encourages us that, hey, nobody else might love you, but Christ loves you. The world might not recognize you, but God recognizes you. And so we picture him at the table with the very man who would betray him. Speaking love, speaking kindness. With the very people who would abandon him and run away. And we imagine Jesus just before he was going to give himself. Saying, take and eat this bread. And him knowing, him picturing that this bread is the very bread that was going to take the punishment of Peter and Paul, or, and Paul and John and James. Take and eat. So let's eat and remember. And as we get ready to drink the cup, I want you to think about who that person is, those people. Maybe they're alive, maybe they're not alive. And I want you to remember that Christ died for them too. And so just take a moment and let's ask God to save them and forgive them. Jesus took the cup and he gave it to them and said, take and drink. This is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for you. Let's remember. Let's close in prayer. God, we offer up a broken world. We know that we can see the, the writing on the walls. We know that in the coming years, more and more people will hate us as this country gives itself more and more to that which is evil and against you. And Lord, whether somebody someday throws a brick through this wall or somebody comes in and points a gun at me or people just make fun of us or hate us. I pray that we would meet them with a supernatural love. It doesn't mean we don't defend ourselves and stand up for ourselves. Lord, but would you help us to be more than ordinary? Would you help us to look for opportunities to show a supernatural kindness through you living in us? Would you prompt us when we feel like lashing out? Would you prompt us when we know we should say sorry that we would? And God, help us to trust in you in these weird times that we find ourselves in. Until that day when we go to be with you, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming and worshiping, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.